Section 91 of Word Portraits of Famous Writers. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rosemary DeSapio. Word Portraits of Famous Writers, edited by Mabel E. Watton. William Shakespeare, 1564 to 1616. From E. T. Craig's Portraits of Shakespeare. Asterix. The portrait of Martin Drusout, published with the first folio edition of Shakespeare's works in 1623, has a greater claim to attention, as it was engraved by a well-known artist at the time, when published by Shakespeare's contemporaries, Hemming and Condell, and has the additional testimony of the poet's friend, Ben Jonson, in its favor, in the following lines inscribed opposite to the engraving of the portrait. This figure that thou here seest put, it was for gentle Shakespeare cut, wherein the graver had a strife with nature to outdo the life. Oh, could he but have drawn his wit, as well in brass as he hath hit his face, the print would then surpass all that was ever written brass. But since he cannot reader look not on his picture but his book these lines would indicate that the portrait of the face was represented with some degree of truth it may be observed here that until within the last few years artists were less exact and minute in the delineation of the head than the face and the head appears unusually high for its breadth and impresses you with the semblance of a form more like scott than byron of canova than Chantry. The features of Drusout's engraving bear a closer resemblance to the plaster cast than to the Stratford bust. The nose has the same flowing outline, well-defined, prominent, yet finely chiseled, and the nostrils rather large. There is the same long upper lip and the general correspondence with the mouth of the cast. The eye is large and round, and in life would be mild and lustrous. The hair is thin and not curled, and the head is high but comparatively narrow. There would be moderate secretiveness, less destructiveness, small constructiveness, and little acquisitiveness. There is an ample endowment of the higher sentiments. The imaginative and imitative faculties are represented as very large. Ideality, wonder, wit, imitation, benevolence, and veneration, comparison, and causality are all very large. The perceptive region is scarcely sufficiently indicated for the powers of mind possessed by Shakespeare, in his vast and ready command of view over the range of natural objects so evident in his works. This may be the fault of the engraver. It is the opposite in this respect to the cast from the face. There is one feature in the portrait which harmonizes with Milton's praise, and Johnson's worship, and Spencer's admiration. His large benevolence, veneration, and ideality, and his small destructiveness and acquisitiveness leading to the control over his feelings and generous sympathy with others, manifested by his quiet manner and gentle nature. Men of strong passions like Johnson and Byron have very different heads to this portrait, which presents a great contrast both to the bust and the Chandos portrait, said to be painted by Burbage, a player contemporary with Shakespeare. The physical proportions of the Drusout figure harmonize better with a fine temperament and an intellectual head than the Stratford bust with Shakespeare's mental activity. 
From Hollowell Phillips' Outlines of the Life of Shakespeare. Asterix. The exact time at which the monument was erected in the church, Stratford-on-Avon, is unknown, but it is alluded to by Leonard Diggs as being there in the year 1623. The bust must, therefore, have been submitted to the approval of the halls, who could hardly have been satisfied with a mere fanciful image. There is, however, no doubt that it was the authentic representation of the great dramatist, but it has unfortunately been so tampered with in modern times that much of the absorbing interest with which it would otherwise have been surrounded has evaporated. It was originally painted in imitation of life, the face and hands of the usual flesh color, the eyes a light hazel, and the hair and beard auburn. The realization of the costume was similarly attempted by the use of scarlet for the doublet, black for the loose gown, and white for the collar and wristbands. From E. T. Craig's Portraits of Shakespeare, Asterix. It only remains to examine the cast from the face of Shakespeare. The documentary statements published by Mr. Friswell tend to establish a claim to attention. It was left in the possession of Professor Owen by Dr. Becker, the enterprising botanist who fell victim to his zeal in the unfortunate Australian expedition under Burke. The cast, it appears, originally belonged to a German nobleman at the court of James I, whose descendants kept it as an heirloom till the last of the race died, when his effects were sold. Mr. Friswell observes that the cast bears some resemblance to the more refined portraits of the poet. It is not unlike the ideal head of Rubiliac, and bears a very great resemblance to a fine portrait of the poet in the possession of Mr. Chalice. It has some of the characteristics of Jansen's portrait. The mask has a mournful aspect, and sensitive persons are affected when they look at it. There are indications visible of wrinkles and crow's feet at the corners of the eyes. It is utterly destitute of the jovial physiognomy of the Stratford bust and portrait. It is certainly the impress from one who is gifted with great sensibility, great range of perceptive power, a ready memory, great facility of expression, varied power of enjoyment, and great depth of feeling. The year 1616, when Shakespeare died, is recorded on the back of the cast. Hairs of the mustache, eyelashes, and beard still adhere to the plaster of a reddish-brown or auburn color, corresponding with several portraits in the Stratford bust. The cast presents to view finely formed features, strongly marked yet regular. The forehead is well developed in the region of the perceptive powers, but scarcely so high as the Druzout, and the coronal region is much lower than that of the Felton head. The sides of the head are well developed, and there is a large mass of brain in the front. The mustache is divided and falls over the corners of the mouth, and the beard or imperial is a full tuft on the chin which, as well as the mustache, appears to be marked with a tool since taken. The face is a sharp oval, that of the bust is a blunt or round one. The chin is rather narrow and pointed, yet firm, that of the bust is well rounded. The cheeks are thin and fallen, in those of the bust full, fat, and coarse, as if good digestion waited on appetite, without thought, fancy, or feeling troubling either. The mask has a moderate-sized upper lip, the bust a very large one, although Sir Walter Scott lost his wager in asserting that it was longer than his own. The lips of the cast are thin and well marked. Those of the bust present a rude opening for the mouth. The nostrils are drawn up, 
and this feature is exaggerated in the bust. The nose of the cast is large, finely marked, aquiline, and delicately formed. That of the bust is short, mean, straight, and small. In their physiognomy and phrenology, they are utterly different. The cast indicates the man of thought, emotion, and suffering. The bust of ease, enjoyment, and self-satisfaction. If the bust is to represent the living image of the dead poet, the answer is, death does not immediately alter the language once written on the ivory gate at the temple of thought. It has been said by John Bell that the Stratford bust was cut from a mask, but by a clumsy sculptor who modified his work. A monument erected as a memorial of Shakespeare should therefore avoid the evident discrepancies that already exist and perpetrate no repetition of forms inconsistent with nature, truth, and beauty. End of section 91. Recording by Rosemary DeSapio.